and y'all can go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles, and we're going to turn to Nahum chapter 3, the final chapter for the prophecies of Nahum. While y'all are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, may we understand that these are not only the words of God, creator of the universe, but also that they are the words of our heavenly father, a father who desires to guide us and direct us, as Pastor Jim was saying, to lead us as a compass. And so, Father, as we read your words, may they, may they guide our hearts. May they bring us closer to you, Father God. May we have a greater understanding of you, maybe even in some of those characteristics of yours that we strayed and stayed away from because, Lord, we didn't know how it related best. But, Lord, that even through some of the hard characteristics as your jealousy and your vengeance, tonight, uh, this morning, as we see your justice, how they all point us to the fact that you care. May that lead us, Father, closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we open to Nahum chapter 3, we're going to close out this book. As I said, it's the last chapter. We're, we're turning from the fact of judgment to the reason for judgment. More precisely, to the justification of judgment. God, in declaring his judgment against Nineveh, and ultimately against the empire of Assyria, is just. We have a hard time with this. In fact, on Facebook, um, there is a meme that goes around, and it top of the meme, it's these one people going, God, I wish God would get rid of all the evil and wickedness that happens. And then in the second, they're like, oh, I was just reading the Old Testament, how God wiped out entire nations and civilizations. What a mean God. Well, you can't, he either gets rid of all the evil and wickedness or he doesn't, you know. Um, and that's kind of where we're at with it. Like we want him to do something about the wickedness and the evil and the, and the atrocities that are committed. But then when he does, we're like, that's not fair. Uh, mainly it's because we don't like it when he does it against us. God is just in declaring judgment, not only against Nineveh, not only against the empire of Assyria, but when he declares judgment against all of humanity. As we look at the spiritual depravity of Nineveh, we're forced to look at the condition of our own time and our own nation and the world in which we live. You see, God is long suffering, but there is a time when his hand of judgment comes down. And he's completely unjust. He's completely and just in doing so. In Genesis 18:25, when God is talking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because their their wickedness is just run amok and it's just terrible. We we know the story of Lot and the visit of the angels and how the men treated the angels and how the angels had to strike them with blindness because they wanted to do wicked and vile things with the angels. And so God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is Abraham's response. He says, you cannot possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And this is where Abraham says, if there's just 10 righteous, will you not destroy the city? 
And God responded. He says, no, I won't destroy it for the, for the righteous. And all through the Bible, what we see is that God is very precise and very able to separate out those who are righteous from those who are wicked. But the truth is, is that only those who are righteous are those who God has declared and made righteous through their faith in him. For there are none other who live to themselves righteously. The Bible declares that there are none righteous. No, not one. Not one seeks after God. Not one does good. Not one. The psalmist praises God for his justice. You've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've erased their name forever and ever. And we, we kind of rejoice at this because we know the effects of wickedness done against us. We know the oppression that is felt when wicked seems to uh, triumph. And we say, that's not fair. That's not just. And so what we're going to see this morning is Nineveh deserved judgment. And we're going to see three reasons why. And these same reasons condemn all under the just hand of God at the day of judgment. Starting in verse 1, it says, Woe to the city of blood! Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses, jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. Because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery, who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea and the river, her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries and all her nobles were bound in chains. You will also become drunk you will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You've made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locust. Your scribes like clouds of locust, which settle on the walls on a cold day, when the sun rises, they take off and no one knows where they are. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountain with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. 
For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Now, we might be inclined to remember Nineveh from the end of the prophecies of Jonah. This is the Nineveh that repented and turned themselves to God. But we have to remember that this is 140 years later. Many generations have passed since then. And Nineveh has resumed their wicked ways and probably even improved upon them. And so what we're going to see is that there's three reasons why God is just in bringing judgment. Number one, they're ripe for judgment. Now, the book of Nahum, it's not politically correct. You will never find a politician that will quote anything from the book of Nahum. It, it won't do anything for their campaign. It won't do anything for their platform. It doesn't fit well with political correctness. But what it does do is it speaks that truth that points us towards God and towards understanding that he is the one who sets standards. Now, Nineveh is ripe for judgment. And we're going to see this in the first seven verses. It says, woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. It says the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses, jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, Mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. Because of the continual prostitution, the attractive mistress of sorcery treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated who will show sympathy to her. Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Now, Nahum's declaring woe to Nineveh. He even has a nickname for them. He calls them the city of blood. And I believe that there's two reasons for calling them that. The first is that Nineveh truly was a city of blood. Blood she spilled through her unquenchable thirst and lust for committing violence and atrocities against other nations that they would conquer. This title was earned through the, just the, the ferocity in which they would conquer other places. They would cut off hands and feet, ears and noses, gouging out eyes. They would lop off heads. They would bind them to vines and heap them up before the city gates, the utter fiendishness by which the captives would be impaled or flayed alive through a process by which their skin was gradually and completely removed. The rulers of Assyria were terribly cruel indeed, and they went further because in their writings that have been discovered, that have been found, they boasted of these acts. The, the cruelty that they did, they, they're, they're, they're written on monuments. And these monuments currently exist in museums. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce quotes some of the choice boasts from various monuments. One says, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. Bubo, son of Buba, I flayed in the city of Arbala and I spread his skin upon the city wall. I flayed all the chief men who revolted and I covered the pillars with their skins. I cut off limbs of the officers, the royal officers. 3,000 captives I burned alive with fire. 
Their corpses I formed into pillars. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers. From others I cut off their noses, their ears, and of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to posts round about the city. And I, and I don't say that to just be um, particularly uh, morbid or anything like that. But we have to see that they were ripe for judgment. We, we would see those atrocities and we would say, there's no way that this place can continue to go on. The Assyrians, they were not only violent, but they were also deceitful. They were clever diplomats. They would lie to other nations, breaking their promise when they would conquer them. We have such recordings through scripture. There's one time in which uh, Sennacherib came against uh, Judah when uh, King Hezekiah was on the throne. And when King Hezekiah was on the throne, Sennacherib was not allowed by the Lord to conquer Judah, but they came against him anyway. And when they came against him, they came outside the city and there were people on the city walls. And as he's talking with Hezekiah, he has his officials talking in Hebrew. And they said, why are we talking in Hebrew when we understand uh, the Chaldean language? And so he said, well, well I'm going to talk in Hebrew because the men on the wall need to hear what I'm going to say. And he says, verse 18, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 31 of second Kings. He's telling them, don't listen to Hezekiah for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and have his own fig tree and may drink water from his own cistern. And that's a lie. He would do that and the people would turn against their own leaders because they would say, look, they don't want to harm us. They just want to rule over us. And what's it matter if you're king or their king? But the Assyrians didn't stop there. They would slaughter people without regard to their age, their sex. They would pile the corpses in piles like lumber as a warning to others. The shedding of innocent blood is a serious sin that God detests and he promises to judge. In Deuteronomy 19.11, it says, if someone hates his neighbor, lies in ambush for him, attacks him and strikes him fatally, he says, there, there's two ways. If, if, if he does it in purpose and he flees to one of these cities, which was the city of refuge, if it happened accidentally, you have a city of refuge that you could go to for safety while, while your case is heard. If you didn't do it by accident and you did it purposefully, it says the elders of his city are to send for him, take him from there, hand him over to the avenger of blood, and he will die. Don't look on him with pity. Purge him from Israel, the guilt of shedding innocent blood, and you will prosper. We, we should never allow the shedding of innocent blood to go about. Why? Because God doesn't allow the shedding of innocent blood to go about unpunished. Now Manasseh was an evil king. Manasseh shed so much innocent blood, he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to the other. This was in addition to his sin that he caused Judah to commit, in which he turned them back. Hezekiah turned them away from the idols. Manasseh sent them back towards the idols. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. The Lord hates, Proverbs tells us, six things, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood. God hates it, detests it. Now, Nahum follows the guilt of Nineveh with some rather incredible descriptions of the final assault upon the great city. It progresses from whips to wheels, from horses to chariots, charging horsemen or cavalry with swords and spears to widespread violence and slaughter. It's an utter picture of sheer carnage. These describe the attack on Nineveh, but it's also reminiscent of how Nineveh would attack. It's justice that the violence that Nineveh perpetrated against others would be done to them. You see, God has a spiritual law. Galatians chapter 6 tells us this. Don't be deceived, for God is not mocked. That which a man sows, he shall also reap. We need to understand that because when judgment comes, it's not because God just out of nowhere says, you know what? Judgment for you and judgment for you and um, nothing for you. It's okay. No, it's, it's all what we've reaped because of what we've sown. And Nineveh sowed great violence and they will reap it. And God says, I'm against you. That's the declaration of the Lord of armies. We looked at that last time. What a fearful thing to hear that the Lord say, I am against you. And being against them, God is just in judgment. He declares the judgment against Nineveh. It's designed and it's executed with the purpose of exposing their shame. You see, Nineveh perpetrated their crimes and, and they committed these atrocities. And, and it didn't bother them. You ever known somebody that does something that is just morally wrong and you try to tell them, hey, that's not right. And they like have zero shame about it. They, they just think it's the greatest thing. Or they, they see nothing. They're like, I don't see what you see is wrong with it. And you're just like, that's what it is with Nineveh towards God. Nineveh's like, what? We're not doing anything. Like, we're just being an empire. And God is saying, I'm going to expose your shame. That's one of the things that the Lord does in judgment is to bring out that realization that we are unrighteous, that we are unholy. Where did my, where is it? There it is. All right. He says, I will lift your skirt over your face and display your nakedness. Obviously that's hyperbole. They're not running around wearing skirts and whatnot. But in the same way that you would keep yourself clothed, modest and whatnot, because it's shameful to be the other way. He says, I'm going to make you shameful. I will expose your shame. They will see it. He says, I'm going to treat you contemptible. I'm going to make a spectacle of you. Your shameless acts will be matched by shameless exposure. God is against Nineveh. But know this. God is against all who would treat human life with such disregard. We live in a nation that treats human life with as much or worse disregard in our sin of continual allowing of abortions. We, we shouldn't be surprised when God says, I'm against America. We, we look at ourselves and we think we're fine, but as long as we're allowing that to go on and, and we turn a blind eye to it and we're like, well, it doesn't bother me. 
that's what the nation of Nineveh was like. Well, it's only the soldiers that are doing that. It's only the kings that are ordering that. But when we turn a blind eye, we, we, we are there along with it. Nineveh's glory is going to be turned to filth. In fact, God says, I will literally fling excrement at you. And the climax of Nineveh's shame is this. They were such inhumane, horrible, violent, just atrocious empire that when those things happened to them, there would be no sympathy from any surrounding nation. There wouldn't be anybody going, oh my gosh, can you believe that that happened? They would be like, yeah, they probably deserved that. Like, I was just waiting for it to happen. I couldn't wait. It says that there will be none that would show sympathy upon her. In fact, none would be even found to comfort her in her trouble. That once attractive harlot, that once great empire that commanded many things, that led the direction of the world, would cause others to recoil at the sight of her. They were ripe for judgment. There's not one person, God says, that would feel sorry for them. You, you know what else makes God just in judgment? When grace is ignored. When grace is ignored. In verse 8, it says, Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with waters surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river, her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. And when shaken, they'll fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You've made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust will strips the land and flies away. It says your court officials are like the swarming locust and your scribes like the clouds of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they take off and no one knows where they are. You might be going... Where's grace in there? With insight and vision from God, Nahum asked Nineveh, he says, are you better than Thebes? Thebes was a, uh, a city that was along the Nile, surrounded by water, natural barriers, protected by the sea, protected by the river, great allies, Cush and Egypt. I mean, Egypt was a powerhouse. They were her support and strength, along with Put and Libya. But despite these things, Thebes became an exile and went into captivity. Despite all these things that they thought made them safe and protected them, Assyria still conquered them. You see, God's pointing out an example 
of a great city that still fell at the hands of the one that God allowed to rout them. Assyria conquered Thebes in 663 BC. God speaks to Nineveh and he says, you likewise will become drunk without sense, without control. You, you, you won't be able to properly comprehend what's going on. And, and here's why. You're going to seek refuge from the enemy. But he says, all your fortresses are like fig trees, ripened figs. I don't know if you've ever seen ripe fruit on a tree, but if you give it a good shake, it just falls. He says, that's what you're going to be like. All they got to do is shake it a little bit and you're going to fall. So too will the strongholds and the fortresses of Nineveh. He says, your soldiers are going to be like women. The Bible's not against women. It's not saying that women can't be good soldiers or anything. In those times, women weren't soldiers. The women stayed at the house. And they, were, they were responsible for raising up the kids and making sure that they survived because if the men didn't come home, they had to continue it on. He's just saying that your soldiers are going to be worthless against this. Not fighters. Not up for the fight. He says your city gates. Your city gates are just going to be wide open for the enemies. Um thanks to the flood that we learned about last time, right? The flood that they opened up that just bored through the wall. Fire will devour the bars of your gate. It's a literal fire. We, we know that the king lit himself on fire along with many others and it melted down the palace. But also fire is a picture of judgment. God is saying judgment is going to devour the bars of your gate. You are not secure against this. Look, what God is saying is 140 years ago, Nineveh, repented and accepted the grace and the mercy offered by God. They were never told about it. They just, they just hoped that God would be graceful, that God would be merciful. They said, let's repent. Let's turn from our evil ways. Perhaps God will turn his hand. They were spared. That generation was spared. Now, 140 years later, judgment is being declared again. And you know what they're doing? Well, we're Assyria. Who's going to take us out? We're a world superpower. And like that, that world superpower is going to be wiped out. Nations rise and fall at the command and the leading and the, and the direction of God. Even nations as great as America. Now, I'm not being down. I'm not saying America is going to be conquered tomorrow or anything like that. But I am saying that we can't put our security. We can't put our trust in the fact that America was once the greatest world superpower. It's been said by many that are involved in Congress and that are on the ins and the out and the know of everything. We're no longer technically a superpower. I mean, that happened at the moment in, in, in which there was a change in our leadership. China knows it. Russia knows it. That's why we're seeing things happening on a grand scale in which they're ignoring the voice of America. We don't have a great voice anymore. And God has taken that away because America is guilty of sins as well, ripe for judgment. Nineveh, because of their repentance and their sincere turning from evil, that generation was spared. 
this generation is intent upon their evil. And on top of that, they not only rejected the grace of God again, they said, we're Assyria, we're strong, we're great in our own power and our own security. And here's the thing. When you ignore God's grace, you make yourself ripe for judgment. So Nahum has choice words for them. He says, draw water for the siege, strengthen your fortresses, step into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick and mold. What he's doing is it's a sense of ironic ridicule. He's saying, Nineveh, when it comes against you, when the siege happens, water's your most pressing need. So make sure that you draw water for that siege, that you just make sure you have enough water and make sure it's all prepared. And when the enemy tears out the wall and the walls need to be repaired, make sure that you're there making more clay, making more brick and mortar so that you can repair the wall. As Nineveh tries and tries to defend herself, the efforts prove futile. Then comes the fire. Then it says that there's a sword bringing with a disaster, their utter doom. There's five groups of people that are identified and they ex- describe the extent of Assyria's national chaos. The merchants become like locusts. The princes are like grasshoppers. The scribes are like clouds of locusts. It says the shepherds are asleep. They're not doing their job. No one's guiding. No one's protecting the people. The nobles, they're slumbering. These verses are a mocking of Assyria. Mocking everything that Assyria says makes it great. God is ripping apart their entire civic structure. All that they trust and all that they rely on is going to be proven false one after another after another. And it will be a definitive falsifying of it. It's not going to be like, well, it could have happened. if Maybe if we made one more brick, the wall would have stayed up. No, it's, it's like it's going to be a futile effort. What are we trusting in? What do we respect in? What do we think it is that makes us safe, that keeps us safe? What do we think it is that staves off the hand of judgment from God? Is it because we're morally upright? Is it because we live in a great nation that provides much freedom? We're still the freest nation in the world. Make no doubt about that. We're still the freest nation in in all the world. But if, if it continues in the way it's going... We can't, our, our country does not provide our safety from the hand of judgment of God. What has your attention? What do you honor? What do you trust in most for security? What, when you feel stressed, when you feel anxious, where do you really go for your help? If God is against you, all of that will fail. doesn't matter what it is that you're trusting in. doesn't matter what it is that you honor. Doesn't, if God is against you, it's going to fail. The flip side of that, the only thing worth trusting in, the only thing worth honoring, the only one who provides true security is God. So we can't ignore the grace of God. Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire is rotten to the core. 
the human condition on top of that is we are all rotten to the core as well. When Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world and death came by sin, sin was passed down through the seed of man and everyone born is born into sin, totally corrupt from the moment of birth. God says to them, king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them. There's no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who's not experienced your constant cruelty? Now, it doesn't mention which king of Assyria that God is talking to at this point. But we do know that it's likely one of two kings, obviously the last two kings of Assyria. One, his name is Shisharish Kun, and he was ruling Nineveh when it was destroyed in 612 BC. He might have been talking to him, saying, look, it's going to fall. But I think it's more likely the next one that came after him, I, I, I want to call him, and his nickname for me will be the king in denial. The king in denial, okay? His name is Ashura Balit, and he ruled from 612 to 609. So after the fall of Nineveh until 609, when the entire crumbling of the Assyrian Empire, he tried to hold the empire together in the city of Haran until it completely crumbled after Nineveh was destroyed. He was like the one holding up all the broken pieces going, no, 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 don't fall down, don't fall down. We're going to keep it standing up. We're going to keep fighting. We're gonna... And like, it's all falling down around him. Everybody's deserting him. And he's like, no, no, Assyria is still great. Trying to convince him of that. That's what the Lord is speaking to him. Look, you're done for, king of Assyria. Your leaders are dead. The people not taken as captives, they're scattered again, never to be gathered. The empire, which stood for centuries, it's been an unstoppable force, totally decimated. Now, when it talks about the remedy for their injury and the wound being severe, I see it in two different planes. The first one is the physical, the devastation of the city, burned, looted, overrun. It's going to look like a wound. It's going to look like it's got a severe critical injury. It's going to be wounded bad enough that there is no reparation for the city. It describes the truth of the completeness of her fall in which she would never be rebuilt. And archaeology proves the fact that Nineveh was never rebuilt. But there's also the sense that the wound and the injury of rejecting God's grace and choosing to continue in their own ways has been their final blow, the death strike. To reject the grace of God is to be without remedy for the judgment of our sin. Remember, as I said before, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered into the world. Sin was passed on from generation to generation through the seed of Adam. All men who are born of women naturally, unlike the immaculate conception of Christ, which is why he's spared from the being born into sin, the rest of us, we were all born into sin, corrupt from the moment of being born. While we all committed our own sin, we were already guilty of sin. We were already corrupted by sin. And when we reject the grace of God, which what is the grace of God? 
that he sent his one and only son to be born, to live the perfect life, free from that born into sin, free from that sinful nature in which he could live perfectly righteously, upholding everything that we should have. And then he could die on the cross. You say, well, couldn't God have just made a man that could have done that? No, he had to be God. And here's why. A righteous man who lived perfectly, if he so desired, could exchange his life for the life of another. He, he would be condemned and the other would go free. But one life is only worth one life. But if that life that is offered up is eternal, then it can be exchanged for an infinite amount of lives. That's why Christ had to be both man and God. And God did that. And it was by the grace of God that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. It's by the love of Christ that he laid down his life. It's been said this way before, Christ saying, for you to face the judgment of God, you have to go over my dead body. Because when Christ came, he said, I offer my life to all who would choose to believe in me. And if you choose to believe in me, he, he said that I am in the resurrection and life. And if you believe in me, then he who dies will, will live forever. Do you believe that? To reject the grace of God is to be without the only remedy that God provided for the condition of sin, to escape the judgment that happens against sin. On top of dealing themselves the death blow, Nineveh and Assyria as a whole, they've been seen as deserving of this justice, executed by God in judgment against them. It says all who hear about their downfall, they're not going to be surprised. They're going to applaud it. Nazi Germany, when it fell, nations applauded. When Stalin's army crumbled, nations applauded. Those who commit those wicked, heinous crimes, the world knows they're deserving of judgment when we see it on that grand scale. I believe that God wants us to see it on a smaller scale, understanding that in sin, we're ripe for judgment without the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Christ, we're ripe for judgment as well. Nineveh's cruelty was known by all around them. God in his love is absolutely just in judging this empire. So there's a book that I read growing up. They made it into a movie. Surprise, surprise. It's called Old Yeller. It's a great book. Wonderful movie. Super tearjerker. In the end, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it or ever seen it, spoiler alert, Old Yeller was a yellow Labrador that had to be put down because it became, it became rabid. It was, the thing, it was the right thing to do. It was rabid. It, it was doomed. It was already going to die. But in the moment prior to death, what happens with rabies is it becomes violent and it, becomes, um, it, it will attack anything around it and not only that, but it spreads the disease. It was dangerous in the meantime. The loving thing to do was to put that dog down, despite how much they loved it, despite how much they cared for it. It's the same way when God judges the sins of the world. 
Love is doing what is best and good for those whom you care about. And God judged the Assyrian empire after years and decades and centuries given to them to repent. And when they refused and God had to destroy them, it was the right thing. It was the just thing. Now in the book of Nahum, we don't find any clear prophecy about Christ, such as what we find in many of the other prophets. But remember, Scripture being God-breathed all the way through, that as the Son, Jesus is the eternal Word of God. And as God the Son, He is also Yahweh in the Old Testament. The voice that speaks here is the voice of Christ, along with the Father, along with the Holy Spirit, who are all in one agreement together. We love to think about the grace of God. We do tend to shy away from all other scripture, both Old and New Testament, which talks about God's wrath and God's judgment. But Nahum stands as a warning that we do not presume upon God's grace. What do I mean by that? It's not that we can't trust in God's grace. No, by all means, trust in the grace of God. But we can't presume it. God doesn't have grandchildren. Just because your parents are saved doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you know someone who's saved, doesn't, it doesn't like rub off on you. It's not like this weird juju that rubs off on you. Everyone has to make their own personal choice to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is a personal God. But scripture teaches us this. God is just in judgment, but God also cares. He's merciful and he's slow to wrath. Look at how many centuries he gave the Assyrian Empire. He even had an entire generation spare judgment because they repented. Scripture reveals a gracious God willing to forgive any and all who would repent. God is a stronghold for those who trust in him. But God is also a God of wrath, jealous love for his people, a God of vengeance to right the wrongs committed against his people. He's a God of judgment and a God of justice. And that's consistently revealed through all of scripture. But know this, God is willing to forgive the repentant. Doesn't matter the nation, doesn't matter the culture. The same God who'd forgiven Nineveh in the days of Jonah is the same God that showed grace to Israel when they transgressed. But at the same time, God will punish the unrepentant equally and regardless of nationality or culture. The same Babylonians whom God raised up to punish Nineveh would also fall because, and they would ravage the unrepentant Jerusalem. Because God's grace urges repentance. But when grace is trampled upon, when grace is ignored, you can be sure the vengeance of God will come. Nahum is about the judgment upon the nation of Assyria and a warning to Judah as well. But that's not the only level we have to be aware of it on. It's true for his church as well. If anything, God has higher requirements for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying that he's expecting us to live perfectly. 
but he's expecting us never to ignore his grace, to always rely upon it, to trust in him, to look to him, never to trust in ourselves, never to think higher of ourselves than we ought to. If one comes into the church as a born-again believer, it's because we've received his grace. There's no other way to come into the church but through the grace of God. But grace is supposed to lead us from sin. It does not justify our sin. Paul tells us it's entirely wrong to continue in sin so that grace may abound. That is insane. To take the grace of God and say, oh, because God forgives me so easily, I can do whatever I want and just ask God for forgiveness. We do know that God will judge We know that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. God will judge his church, but he's also going to judge all the individuals who trample upon his grace. All those who reject Christ trample upon his grace. We should not use our status as his people to live however we want, to live in sin, to choose sin, to be like the world, to to mesh in with this world, to relish in the things of this world. We're to be examples, using our lives to proclaim God's grace in Jesus Christ that took the judgment that we deserved on the cross. Because the judgment of God is one day coming against all of the earth. And the wickedness of the earth is as great, if not greater, than that wickedness that we looked at in Nineveh. Vengeance is certain, so find your safety in God. The world's going to try and protect itself from the wrath of God, but unless they receive the grace of God and repent, they will likewise perish. Thebes perished. Nineveh perished. Empires crumbled. One after the other. They will all fall at the hand of God. Because God is just. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we just thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for sending your prophet Nahum And Lord, though this picture of Nineveh didn't have that repentance at the end, Lord, it still teaches us a valuable lesson and a truth about who you are, God, that you are serious about sin. That you are true in your promise of judgment. But God, as true as you are about your promise of judgment and as serious as you are about sin, it just proves that what you did by sending Christ to die on the cross is just as true. That you took your vengeance upon sin on his body at the cross as his blood was spilled so that through his redemption, through his sacrifice, those who would come to him can be forgiven of their sin, can escape the judgment of God by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would speak to us here this morning, that you would Speak to those of us who, who think that we're in your family just because our parents are or because we know someone who is. And Father, that you would lead us to your son, that he would be our personal savior for us. And Father, for those of us who have Christ, teach us not to rely on anything else in this world, Father God. Help us to hold firmly and only to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.